The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. It's interesting if you may have picked up from the reading that I'm speaking on grace again. I spoke on grace last time, and I want to speak on it again because I think it's one of the most misunderstood concepts that are out there. So often we look at grace, and uh, I guess I did that. That's where we are. So often we look at grace as our get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, We can do whatever we want. Uh, We can take advantage of each other because ultimately we know God's going to forgive us for that. Um, I think that's a dangerous place for us to be because we end up asking the question, what's the big deal about grace? Well, maybe this is a big deal. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Pleasant reading for chapel. 1 John 1, 5 and 6, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And then you probably know from Matthew 7 where he talks about you'll know them by their fruits. Many people will stand before him on that day say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Wasn't your grace there for me in that and that and that and that? We begin to lose the meaning of grace and what God has done and it becomes all about us. So that's a pretty heavy start for chapel. Um, But I want you to know this as well. If this is where you are playing games with God and his grace, treating it like your own personal ATM card, you can give thanks that God is not only the God of grace, he's God of mercy, the necessary counterpart of grace. When we get in trouble, it's not grace that we need, it's mercy. I can think of countless times through the years where dealing with a student disciplinary situation, I thought this was about grace. Yeah, but you're asking for mercy, not asking for grace. But when we need mercy, God reminds us of this, Proverbs 28, 13. No one who conceals transgressions will prosper, but one who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And then probably, as you know, Lamentations 3, 22 and 23, this should strike some kind of a chord with you. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And then in Matthew, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If we are playing games with God and his grace, and we come to the end of ourselves and say, God, what have I done? What am I doing? His mercy is always there, ever present, ever ready to do what we need it to do, and that is to save us from ourselves.
But then grace picks up from there. And if you've heard the old definition, mercy, not getting what we do deserve, and grace, getting what we do not deserve, God in his love for us through the provision of Jesus Christ prevents that eternal separation that was due to us and then hands us eternal life and a relationship with him that doesn't start in eternity. It starts right here, right now, whenever you've placed your faith in him. So let's look again at our text and dig into that. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So just real briefly, the context of this, Paul is writing to Titus. Titus is on Crete, and Titus had remained on Crete to to help the church that was there. They were all out of whack. They didn't have strong leadership. They didn't have strong teaching. And so Titus's commission was there to bring sound doctrine and teaching to that island and to restore that church that had been established that was there. And so in the midst of that, some of that sound doctrine is what is in chapter 2 that we're going to look at. So let me pray again and we'll unpack it a little bit. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace. Where would we be without you? But Lord, we are weak people often and we look within so quickly and we don't look to you. And so we find ourselves continually in need of that mercy for the forgiveness that we need. Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn to grab hold of your grace that empowers us to walk in truth, to follow after you, to pursue the good deeds that you called us to live in, those things that you have opened up for us, that we could avail ourselves of that, that we could be the people who are salt and light to those around us, to a world that desperately needs you. So we commit it to you, Lord. Help us, I pray. In your name, amen. So, grace. What does it look like? Grace has appeared. So it says in verse chapter 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Here we are in our midst, and boom, Grace is there. Jesus shows up bringing grace for us. Salvation is not possible apart from the grace of God. You know that. None of us, why would Karen even be here if the grace of God had never shown up? We are wasting our time. But it is here, and so there's meaning and purpose in that. Something that this university has latched onto and said, we will do this, and we will stand for this. We will walk a different path. I love that motto. Choosing to walk a different path. And I look back at the paths that I've walked and walked down to a certain point and been like, whoops, wrong path. Come back, kept walking, whoops, wrong path. And God continually either 
kicks me in my tail or gently leads me from the front and says, let's walk a different path together. And I am so grateful for that. Apart from God's grace, we cannot do it. You probably know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. One of the very first verses that my dad helped me learn. For by grace you save through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. It's all God. It's all his grace, that grace that just appeared out of nowhere. And then in Romans 5, 1 and 2, it says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, it goes on in chapter 4. Before that, it's talking about Abraham living by faith, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And so it picks up and says, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him, through Christ. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It says the exact same things as Ephesians 2, 8, 9, just worded a little bit differently, that without faith, we don't get the grace. And it's all by Jesus Christ. Well, why is this grace so necessary? Apart from his grace, we're a mess. We have the power to do nothing. We strive to do it on our own, and nothing helps us. But we need God's grace, his grace upon grace. So grace has appeared. It wasn't there. Jesus showed up, and grace is here. And not only is it appear, has it appeared, it is here in abundance It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Grace for salvation, grace for life, why is it so necessary? If you are striving after something, something good, something in your character, and it's just not happening, you may ask yourself, where in the world is God's grace? It's there. Maybe you should ask yourself about your faith and your effort to try and earn it because you can't earn it. In the same way you can't earn salvation, that growth that you want in the Lord, you can't earn that. It is given by God through that miraculous relationship we have in him through his grace. So God's grace trains us. It equips us to be who he's called us to be. Part of my training came when I was at a school like Karen Bryan College in Tennessee. I went up there. I think I've shared this before. Um, I had a foul mouth and a sharp tongue, quick to get a laugh at somebody else's expense, and I knew that I needed to get rid of that. And before I had gone up to Bryan, I was like, Lord, take that away from me. And so Dr. Bill Brown, one of the professors there, had invited me and three other guys to start meet with him. Six o'clock Tuesday morning at the country kitchen. And we talked about ourselves and where we were. I shared uh, my weaknesses, the sins that kept uh, taking me down. And Dr. Bill said, learn this. Psalm 141, verses 3 and 4. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing, to practice deeds of lawlessness with men who do iniquity and don't let me eat of their delicacies. What in the world does that mean? You know, when I would cut somebody down and get a laugh at their expense, I felt good. It was nice 
for people saying, that was cool, that was really good. But you know, it's pretty shallow. Or it comes around and gets you. And how does it feel then? So the psalmist says, don't taste those morsels. They turn into bitter tasting things after a while. Don't go after those delicacies. And so set a guard, O Lord, over my lips. And I can think of multitudes of times when those words have come up in my mouth and I've swallowed them back. And it's been like, thank you, Lord. I appreciate you helping us. And so God's grace trains us, sometimes through other people, sometimes through the people that you hang around with. We have discipleship coordinators. We have small group leaders. What a fantastic place to be trained. You're sitting right here in chapel. Some of you loathe this Monday and Friday, sometimes on Wednesday. Why in the world? What the heck? Why would you do that? It's funny. In my 30-plus years at CIU, alumni would come back, and they would say, you know what I miss most, and you're going to laugh. And I'm going to say, I know, chapel. And they're like, how'd you know that? Because this is one place where we get together and we sing, and it reminds us that we're a part of something big. It's eternal, and it's about Christ. Those songs that the worship team led us through, pointing us to the glory of God, it reminds us there's an eternity, and if we know Christ, we're a part of that. It reminds us of who we are, and in that corporate worship, not just in chapel, but especially in church, we belong We belong to someone who has power over all the crud of the world and he's invited us to spend eternity with him. His grace is unbelievable and it trains us. We don't like training, but it's there. Christ in us empowers us to live the way we were supposed to live. What does that mean? It means more than we think it does. Why do we make this effort to do all these works? I thought grace was about his gift to us and him doing it on our behalf. Not to earn any merit or favor from God. Why do we do these good works? Back up. Why do we do these good works? Not to merit any favor from God, but because of the relationship that we are in with God. Grace is not opposed to effort. Get this. Please, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to the idea of earning any merit from God. If you are about God, look what I did. God says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we don't try and buy God off. If we want this relationship with him and we say, God, what do you want me to do this to have this relationship with you? He's not going to say, get up early and have your devotions. He's not going to say, memorize these verses. He's not going to say, you better stand at this camp and make that commitment. That's not about what God says. Think about it this way. What if I went to my wife, Patty, and I said, Patty, what is the least that I can do and still be your husband? Can we put that down on paper? Can we work that out? What type of a relationship am I asking Patty to have with me? What if at my wedding, when we started reciting our vows, I recited my vows to Patty in that 
fashion. I promise to do as little as possible to maintain our relationship. You know in that part of the marriage ceremony when they say, if anybody has anything, why these two should get married? Yeah, my mom and my dad would have taken me down on the stage. What my dad thought of Patty, my wife, just to show you, we would go somewhere, and my dad would introduce me, introduce us, and he'd go, this is my daughter-in-law, Patty, and what's his name? (laughs) So you can imagine if I made that type of commitment towards Patty, what's the least that I can do to have this relationship? There would be people that would take me out. What kind of a relationship is that? Salvation is not a transaction. It is a transformation. And I will tell you this. My marriage to Patty was a transformation. I never knew life could be so full. I never knew somebody could point out so much that was wrong within me. (laughs) But love me and show mercy and grace that painted a picture of what Christ is about to make that relationship as incredible as it has been for the past 35 years. It is not a transaction. God, I'll do this, you do that. You know that, but you know what? We do it every single day. God, what's the least I can do and us be okay? You never say that to God. I never say that to God. I just live it. It comes... Like that. Because we're fallen, needy people in need of Christ and his grace. What if you said, God, I give you 10 minutes in my morning. How about that? You're thinking, well, that's pretty cheap. But let me warn you. God, I spent two hours with you today studying your word down on my knees in prayer That can be just as shallow as the 10 minutes or the no minutes if we're treating it like we're checking off some requirement with God. He never wants that transaction. He wants that relationship. I'm not here to preach about sin because in the middle of our passage, it talks about renouncing ungodliness and worldliness, but I am going to talk to you about it a little bit. Because it's not about what happens when we die. It's about what happens while we live. Our relationship doesn't begin the moment that we die. Our relationship has begun already if we know Christ as our Savior. And so we need to think about what we do. Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What is ungodliness? I would say one thing is where we put up idols. And how do we put up idols in front of each other? Well, hearing some of the things that have gone on, reading some of the bit reports, incident reports, that goes on between all of us sometimes. The way we treat each other, the way we talk to each other, the way we respect each other. We've put an idol up, and the idol is me. How come you're not doing this with your world revolving around me? Why should I care about you in the relationship? Because you don't care anything about me. That 
is ungodliness. You have put yourself in the center of that relationship. And it's not about giving. It's not about loving. It's not about serving. You know, some people have talked to me about dating. You look through the Bible for dating guidelines. They're not there. I tried. But I know this. In Ephesians, it says right after that cool part that says, wives, obey your husbands, it comes to this part that we skip over. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What wife would not be cuckoo about submitting to a guy that's going to love her even as Christ loved the church? So if you want to get into a dating relationship, here's your dating guidelines. Start loving your girlfriend the way that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you're dating as a, hmm, I wonder if this is someone that I'm going to marry, start practicing that right here, right now. Love her the way that Christ loved the church. What are worldly passions? What do you do on your phone? What do you do on your laptop with your girlfriend, with your boyfriend? When you go off campus, do you follow the world or do you follow God? There, preaching about sin over. How do we avoid all that? By faith. How do we get that grace that leads to salvation? By faith. It's a gift from God. How do we overcome ungodliness and worldly pleasures? By faith, resting in God's grace. I can't do this. God, I need you to help me. Now, I mentioned before, I'm a soccer player. What good is any athletic competition if there's only defense? There has to be some offense. Nobody wants to play in a sport where there is only defense. It looks pretty terrible. I watched one of the soccer games of the ladies and the other team, their defense was packed in the last third the entire time. And when they got possession of the ball, they simply kicked it to midfield to one of our defenders and we just recycled the ball and started over again. It was a no, I'm not knocking any of the ladies soccer team here. It was a boring game to watch because our ladies would go down, take a shot on goal, put one in sometimes, or the other team would get position, kick it out, and put it right back in. You cannot live your Christian life by defense alone. There has to be some offense. And so we're called to live lives that are self-controlled. That's inward. Do I have myself under control? Do we live upright? And that's outward. Am I living as a man of integrity before you guys? I have this title here. I need to live up to something. But greater than my title here is my title as husband of Patty, father of Amy, Katie, and Nathan, child of God. Those are my top ones. And more than anything else is my title as a child of God. Am I living upwardly? Am I living outwardly? Am I living inwardly? Well, how do we do that? 
It's tough. Look at this. It's easy to feel weak when we're in the face of temptation. It's easy to wonder if God is near and if he hears our prayers. It's easy to question the goodness of God in times of trouble. It's easy to ask yourself if God has forgotten you when you compare the trouble of your life with the apparent ease of the person next to you. It's so easy to think that life can be found somewhere outside of Christ. It's easy to forget when life spins out of control that Jesus Christ rules over all things for his glory and for your good. It's easy to forget who you are and to look for identity elsewhere. What do we do? Faith. Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy for those boneheaded things that we do and find the grace to help in the time of need that I can do the right thing at the right time because God has empowered me to do that. And then in the end of this section that we've been looking at in Titus, it says, in this present age, and all that means is right here, Right now, with every fiber of my being, with all the effort I can put forth not to earn that favor from God, but because God has empowered you to be able to do those things by faith through his grace. So grace has appeared. Grace is in abundance. Grace is anticipated, waiting for the blessed hope So we're doing all these things in this present age, but we're waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The best part is still ahead of us. When Jesus comes and we're with him in eternity, who is he? Jesus is the embodiment of grace. He gave himself up, as you know, in Philippians 2. He laid aside everything that he could claim as his so that he could come in the form of a human being, taking the form of the bondservant. He emptied himself, and by being obedient, gave himself back to God. He became grace for us. God has not acted just once on our behalf, though. He has acted, he is acting, and he will continue to act until we stand before him as his people. Grace is for salvation. Grace is for life. His scripture reminds us. We had a sermon on this, message on this, not too long ago. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 No temptation has taken you, such as is common. I've memorized this in another translation, so. Um, Such as is common to man, God is faithful, who will not tempt you beyond what you are able to bear, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Stuff will come. You walk out those doors, maybe even right now. Temptation is facing you. It will come. But God is there. Grace is there. And it will always be there. You just need to ask for it. That we would be people zealous for good works. And that is the transition to the last part of this. Verse 15 says, Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Be people zealous. Some of you are zealous for good grades. 
What does that mean? You put a t-shirt on that says, woo, good grades. That doesn't get you good grades. A zealous person, someone who is zealous for good grades, is a nerd. But a nerd that's going to be successful and happy in life because they're saying, Lord, this is what you've called me to do. I want to do it to the best of my ability. And so I'm going to study. And I'm going to study. And I'm going to pay attention. And people are going to think I'm a nerd. And maybe I am. But that's okay. Because my identity is tied up in you. Not the grades. I just want to be zealous for those things that you've called me to do. Some of you are zealous athletes. And your coach appreciates that. Is that zeal pointed in the right direction, though, being an athlete for the glory of God or for yourself? Which one is it? So what do we do with this? Being a people zealous for good works. Paul encouraged Timothy to declare these things. Here's Timothy, young, or excuse me, Titus, young Titus. Paul has commissioned him on this island of Crete to help restore this church. There were no doubt people that had been in that church a long time, older people. And so Titus is encouraged to stand up, be strong, rebuke when you need to rebuke, exhort when you need to exhort, and don't let anyone disregard you. What does that word disregard you mean? They come up to you, and the Greek word, it kind of means look all around you. They're coming over, they're sizing you up and say, who are you really? You goody, always studying, always got your Bible open in chapel, think you're so good. You're nothing. That hurts. It can hurt bad. I'm sure that Titus took a few blows, verbally, maybe otherwise, who knows, But he knew that people were there for him. Paul, Apollos, others that had come alongside. Titus was able to stand up and challenge that church and preach the word to them. Where's your zeal? Do you have zeal for God? I get really excited and encouraged when I hear about the prayer groups that are going on campus, the spontaneous worship that goes on, the small groups that are going on. The small group, the discipleship coordinators that are leading those groups. If you need grace and you need a team and you want to get amongst some people that are zealous for good works, I would think that in the midst of that, you can find them. You will find people on this campus that will deride you. They will look down on you. They will disregard you. They're everywhere. You don't have to look very, very far. Would you be a people of good works in the spirit of the manner of the one who loved you, who saved you and gives you the power to be who he's called you to be. Will you be there for one another? Would Cairn University be characterized by a people zealous for good works? And if you don't think you have a friend here, someone that's going to stick up for you, I would invite you to holler at me. I had a professor that took me in. Now, granted, it was 6 o'clock in the morning, but Dr. Bill walked with me through those three years, two and a half years, and he kicked my tail. He memorized scripture with me. He admitted his faults. He prayed with me. 
he and his wife, Lynn, counseled me when things were going rough, when I was looking after Patty and Patty wasn't looking toward me. If you don't have anybody, go find the discipleship coordinators. If you know there's a small group, go in there. Give your heart to the Lord and let those people be a means of grace for you. Even as you come in here and you sing about that God who loves you and has called you and set you apart, would you be there for one another? And again, I know there's a lot of faculty, these two brothers right up here, lots of others. Find them. Hopefully some of them will find you. But if you're looking for that, I'm here. And better than that, God has not forsaken you. And Christ is with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It challenges us, man. It punches us right in the face sometimes. And this is one of those passages. It calls us out. And there's not a whole lot you can do with it except reckon with the truth. So I pray for me, Lord, that you would keep me a man of your word, that you would keep those people in my life that are able to call me out, see those inconsistencies and challenge me to walk better and do better because of who I am and who I've got working for me. Father, I pray that you would empower those students that are standing up for you in small groups, prayer groups, worship groups, whether it's on their own in class, whatever it is, Lord, would you embolden them by your grace to be people zealous for good works. And for, Lord, those that are choosing to play games with you, may they see your mercy and may they run to it. And that in finding your mercy, they might also find your grace that would enable them to live the way they should live. Lord, I played games for several years. And it was a waste. So make us a people zealous for you. God, you have loved us. You have empowered us. You have died for us. And we thank you for that. Lord, encourage us in the midst of challenging words to know your joy in the midst of challenges, that we could be a people of fellowship, spurring on one another to love and good deeds. Thank you, Lord. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Have a great day.